0: Welcome back, listener, to Running Unopposed. I am Rose, joined by my lovely co-host, Gabriel. Hello. And, Gabe, have you ever heard of Cuba? Uh, maybe. (laughs) You're not sure. Okay, that's good.
1: No, I'm not sure. Sorry. All right.
0: Well, today we are covering our first subject from Latin America, a man synonymous with the most extreme end of the Cuban exile movement, A man so dedicated to anti-communism and attacking Castro-led Cuba that even the United States, during the Cold War, said, hey there, buddy, tone it down a little.
1: How extreme was he? I'm not asking for the full story just yet, but I just want a bit of a sneak peek so I know what I'm in for, you know?
0: Um, extreme enough for the U.S. government to designate him a terrorist. I mean, like, name, like, an opinion he had. It was less about his opinions and more about his actions.
1: Mm, okay, he was not a okay. man
0: of theory. He was a man of action.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Uh, Luis Clemente Posada Carriles was born on February 15th, 1928 to a rich family in Cienfuegos, a city right on the water in Cuba. Sources described his family as fairly wealthy. Uh, he grew up in Cienfuegos until he was 17 when he moved to Havana to study medicine. Interestingly enough, Fidel Castro was in Cienfuegos in 1950 at the same time for stu- for, as part of the student protest movement. Uh, I didn't find any evidence that he and Posada ever met. Uh, but yeah, it, it sort of shows how small the Cuban kind of educated class was at this time. Uh, he studied medicine at the in Havana. Uh, the New York Times said he was a sugar chemist at one point. And Fidel Castro was actually three years ahead of him at the university. But once again, they never met. And again, that just shows how small Cuba is and how small the educated upper class was. These two men ran in the exact same circles, as did uh, Orlando Bosch, another prominent Cuban exile, who will come up later. Was uh, he actually president? I don't know. Uh, he, he, was like a clo- he was like a personal associate of Castro, like even during the Cuban Revolution, and then became disillusioned and became a dissident. We'll bring him up in a bit. Uh, but as we'll see, they all chose very different political paths. Carriles moved back to Cienfuegos at some point before 1956, because in 1956, he and his friends started a pest control company. On January 3rd, 1957, a bomb destroys their truck. The art. The only article about this I found from some local newspaper says that there was a one thousand peso reward for any information on the perpetrators, and interestingly, it uses the word terrorism to refer to the attack.
1: Also, uh, fun I really fact tried. A... Yeah, go for it. Something I found out that's interesting about this guy was that the pest control company was actually called Vominos Pest.
0: <laughs> it was not called that. I didn't. It would figure, actually become the inspiration for
1: going. a little show called Breaking Bad. <laughs>
0: Yes, today we are covering Gustavo Fring. (laughs) But no, he, um, it it was, it had a really generic name. It was like like fumigation services or something.
1: Uh, That's what Vomino's Pest was.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's not what that means. The article, uh, I tried to figure out what was going on, uh, and why they, it was considered a terrorist attack, but I really don't know. Uh, Get used to weird stuff like that, though, because Carilius is one of the most spooked up men we will ever cover. Really? Yeah, I found one source that suggested he was an agent of Batista's secret police, but I couldn't corro- corroborate it, so I'm not going to like definitively say that. Like, I couldn't find a primary source for it.
1: Or like a and speaking of Batista,
0: service? let's talk about it a little bit. We don't have time to cover all of Cuban history from the time of the Spanish-American War to 1959, but in short, string of dictators, coups, sometimes elections. Uh, Batista was part of a coup in 1933. Uh, He was highly influential for a series of puppet leaders, won the presidency in 1940, left office in 1944, uh, and the guy he lost, and then his friend lost the presidential election, so he lived in New York and Florida for a while. But then returned to Cuba in 48, and in 52, while running for president in an election he was 100% going to lose, he got the military together and overthrew the civilian government. Uh, It's sort of hard to emphasize how far behind the world Cuba under Batista was. The level of corruption is hard to describe because it sounds fake. Uh, The city of Havana was basically run by the mafia, uh, and it was very dependent on the United States, which is important to note for later. Two-thirds of its imports, 80% of its utilities, and 90% of its mines were owned by American firms or came from American firms.
1: Which wasn't that unusual, I feel, for Central America and Latin America more generally.
0: No, but it meant uh, the U.S. embargo in Cuba a couple years later would be a big fucking deal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fair. Although Um, it failed to knock out Castro.
0: That's true, it did. But it it hurt them quite a bit. But to Carreras this revolution was the height of arrogance. From the beginning he was publicly and loudly against the Cuban revolution. He was even briefly put in a military prison but then released. And probably correctly worried about going ba- about being put back in prison he fled to avoid reprisal. He ended at the Argentinian embassy in Mexico seeking asylum then made it to the US about a month later. You know something kind of funny I found. Uh, Carina is his sister, Maria Conchita Posada de Perez, not only stayed in Cuba, but became a colonel in the army. <laughs> which is sort of a fun little family gathering there. Uh, Posada once said of her as late as 1998 that he was sending her money, which is insane to think about. That you've dedicated your life to overthrowing the government of Cuba, but because your sister is a colonel in the army, you're sending the money?
1: Also, she didn't have enough money to support herself as a colonel in the army?
0: I mean, presumably she did. He just, you know, it was like, oh, I got to take care of my family. Yeah, but like if she has the money, do it. Yeah, but a lot of people like to send money to their family back home. That's not that uncommon. Yeah, but I feel like it's like the because
1: they kind of need it.
0: No, sometimes it's just you make a lot more than them because you live in a higher income country. So you want to give them something. I guess, yeah. No, it's pretty common for people to send money back home if they're immigrants. No, I know that's common, but
1: I figured it was because like one income was a lot higher than the other. not And like that they would probably need it.
0: Well, regardless, it's now 1961. A man named John Fitzgerald Kennedy is the president. And, uh. Of Cuba. That's right. <laughs> uh. The U.S. was pretty much immediately trying to overthrow the revolutionary government of Cuba. Uh. A lot of American funding went into the Escambre Rebellion, which started later in 1959, the same year of the revolution. Uh. But now they're plotting a different operation called the Bay of Pigs. Uh, also, a funny, just a funny anecdote I found. Um, in April of 1959, four months after the Cuban Revolution, Castro went to New York City and met with CIA agent Jerry Drohler, uh, and Droller later said he believed Castro was a firm anti-communist because what they talked about was, um, was like helping to defeat communism in Cuba. So I think it's kind of funny that Castro somehow played an experienced CIA agent for an absolute fool. I, I just found is, that mildly amusing.
1: <laughs> I don't know how he did that. I assume there, did Castro speak English? I don't know. I think so. Did Driller speak Spanish? I don't know. Okay, because unless I have certain proof that one of them was bilingual, I'm going to assume it was some sort of translation error.
0: No, I mean, I think the more likely scenario is Castro was just lying because <laughs> he knew that an American embargo would hurt a lot. So he didn't want to deal yeah. with it.
1: Yeah, but he can only get away with it for so long because eventually well, yeah, eventually eventually they, there was an embargo. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, regardless, Droller later starts recruiting Cubans and Cuban exiles to form a militia, which goes down to Mexico City for training. And I uh, guess who happens to be in Mexico City, Luis, Luis Posada Carias. So he joins up. Now, Gabe, would you like to describe the Bay of Pigs thing briefly?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. So basically, it was as Rose said, a bunch of Cubans and Cuban exiles uh, uh came together to uh overthrow to not. It wasn't really uh, intended for a coup as much as it was a popular uprising, I'd say. Um, Yeah. And eventually, and the landing, I think, was semi-successful, but they also immediately got bombed, Uh, policemen attacked, military attacked, and Kennedy did not provide air support at a crucial moment. Yes. So the plan that he and Eisenhower had uh, come up with had gone down the toilet pretty quickly, even though it, I'm not going to say it would have succeeded, but... I don't think it was doomed to failure, necessarily.
0: Yes. uh, The landing actually only lasted three days before they were all arrested or forced to retreat. And the usually cited reason is Kennedy's refusal to authorize further airstrikes against Cuba. Did any of them get killed? In, like, captivity? Uh, I don't know. I think one or two of them died.
1: In captivity or in combat?
0: Like in combat. Most of them uh, stayed in captivity. I don't know if I don't know what happened to them. Because because Posada would have loved to be a martyr to his cause, but he never got the chance. See, there was a second unit waiting in Guatemala that was to provide backup to the initial landing group. That never actually happened. So he never actually made it to Cuba during the Bay of Pigs. I don't think Posada ever got over this. I think he saw this as his chance to take the fight to Castro. And when this failed, it made him only more radical. Uh, And I think this is, and it's in this state, where the CIA scoops him up and says, hey, we can still use you. Go to officer school in Fort Benning, Georgia. According to the New York Times, his training was mostly in, quote, demolition, propaganda, and intelligence. So pretty perfect for a guy who's going to go on to do a lot of terrorism. Uh, He very quickly became friends with another Cuban exile in his platoon, a man named Jorge Lincoln Mascanosa. Mascanosa uh, was also part of the Bay of Pigs, and he was similar to Carillas in er, Pasada, in that he was a vehemently anti-Castro Cuban exile. Okay. Uh, both of them sort of realized that the U.S. Army wasn't going to formally invade Cuba again after the Bay of Pigs, so they moved down to Miami, Florida, where a lot of Cubans were, because Miami's pretty close to Cuba. Uh... And this is sort of when Miami gets cemented as, like, the center of the Cuban exile community. In uh,
1: the
0: 60s? Like, yeah, like, right after the Bay of Pigs. Okay, that makes like sense. The years, like, the years after it, the 60s, yeah. Mosconosa decides to take a legitimate route. Uh, he becomes a millionaire through his business dealings. Uh, but he, let's say he stays involved with uh, La Causa, La, the cause, as they call it. Um, and we will come back to him later specifically him and the Cuban American National Foundation. But for now, let's get back to Luis Posada, Cariles. He saw what Mas Canosa was doing, and he said, I'm good. So he fell in with the Miami offices of the CIA, who were very active in recruiting from the Cuban exile community. It should be noted that the organized crime community, uh, specifically the emerging Cuban mafia, was doing the exact same thing. And sometimes those two groups were entangled together, as organized Cuban criminals were just as mad at Castro as the CIA for slightly different reasons. Basically, the mob was mad that they used to basically own Cuba, and now they didn't, so they were perfectly willing to cooperate with anti-Castro stuff. The Cuban-American mob, just real brief, sprang up in Miami in the 60s, mostly running illegal gambling. Uh, Jose Miguel Battle, an actual Cuban-American mob boss, was even part of the Bay of Pigs, to sort of show the connection there.
1: His name was Battle? That is a cool name.
0: Interestingly enough, he was a vice cop in Havana during the Batista era, Batista era, so he basically saw this rampant corruption and gangsterism up close and said, yeah, this rocks. Let's do it in Miami.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, he could profit off of it.
0: So. Yeah. Uh, Jose Miguel Battle might come up again if we ever do an ap- a full episode of deep diving into the Cuban-American mob. Okay. Uh, but that's that might be out of bounds for this podcast. I haven't decided yet.
1: Yes. Eh, so what if it is? Why not?
0: During this period of Posada's life, from after his move to Miami, but before 1968, he was working with, if not fully for, the CIA. He had handlers. They were in charge of him. And the CIA got a lot out of him. They got a lot of good intel about the Cuban community in Miami, who might be a good recruit, and even got him to train some other recruits as part of an eventual guerrilla war against Castro. Uh, Posada says they were full operatives, with CIA-supplied guns, safe houses, boats, fake documents, everything. His CIA evaluation in 1965 describes him as, quote, of good character, very reliable, security conscious.
1: So, essentially, like overall, he's a good candidate in any future operation.
0: Yeah, he's a good agent for the CIA. They're fans of him for now. For now. They will eventually not be fans of him. <laughs> eventually, Posada falls in with a group called the RECE Cuban Representation in Exile which later merged with other groups to become the Coordinator of United Revolutionary Organizations, or CORU, as the Spanish acronym would be, C-O-R-U. Which I know sounds like a communist group, based on the name, but it was a very anti-communist group. They were dedicated to overthrowing Castro. Uh, Do you remember Mas Canosa earlier, the legitimate businessman?
1: Yes. Well, he was paying people thousands of
0: dollars to carry out bombings across Latin America. Wait, what? Yes, uh, because of pe- on governments and individuals who were perceived as being sympathetic to Cuba.
1: Uh, did they often work?
0: Sometimes. Uh, Posada was sneaking across borders, carrying up to 100 pounds of C-4, sometimes. Uh, on the CIA payroll. I don't think Mas Canoso was, but Posada definitely was. Wait, uh, so Mas was Canoso
1: so- just doing, like,
0: freelance bombings? No, he wasn't doing the bombings. He was paying people to do the bombings.
1: But my point is he was paying people to just do, like, freelance work?
0: Yeah, basically. (laughs) Because he was that dedicated to fighting Castro. I I mean, mean, I'm sure he he had it. Like, I'm sure the CIA knew what he was doing. But as far as I can tell, it was his money.
1: But it wasn't really like they were in cahoots?
0: I think it was like they had the same goals and were doing the same things. And they sometimes worked together. But I don't think he was literally on the CIA payroll, no.
1: Uh, Okay, gotcha.
0: But they still work together. Uh, Posada, on the other hand, was absolutely on the CIA payroll. Uh, in 1966, he wanted to purchase a 25-foot boat and ask the agency per- for permission first because he had handlers, and you have to do that when you have handlers, apparently. Uh, in case you're wondering, they denied it, saying it would not enhance his cover. So, sip, went out for our boy. A declassified CIA document also says he was involved in a coup attempt in Guatemala in 1965. I didn't find much about that, Guatemala in 1965 was in the midst of a brutal civil war, but 1965 is around when the government started getting American aid and training for its counterinsurgency operations, often leading to mass kidnappings, torture, and death squads. So I couldn't find any evidence directly linking Luis Posada to to, uh, war crimes in Guatemala, but uh, it seems likely. Another thing Posada was doing was uh, working with the Mafia. He helped smuggle explosives and silencers to Frank Rosenthal, a.k.a. Lefty Rosenthal, a highly connected criminal in Miami. Uh, The CIA even suspected that Posada was fully on the payroll of Rosenthal, just like he was on theirs. Uh, It should be noted that Frank Rosenthal left Miami for Vegas after he was worried about being connected to a series of bombings. Now, I looked at some declassified documents, and they admit that Posada was meeting with Rosenthal under their orders initially. And under CIA orders, according to CIA documents, he gave Rosenthal hand grenades and silencers. Which is weird. I don't know what that's about. I don't know why the CIA was giving him weapons.
1: Was he doing it against Cuba?
0: No, he was just doing regular mob shit.
1: Uh Oh. Like against guys who like owed him money or whatever?
0: Yeah. So we were just giving this like regular gangster guns and silencers. So that's sort Maybe of insane to think about.
1: Were we giving them to him, or was it uh, the, or was it the businessman who was doing it with CIA knowledge? Were we what? Were was the CIA giving him the weapons, or was the businessman giving them to him, but with CIA no, uh, knowledge?
0: Luis Posada Carriles was giving them to Frank Rosenthal, the criminal, with CIA knowledge and approval.
1: Oh, okay. That's yeah. not good.
0: Yeah. Uh, the CIA, well, it wasn't CIA guns, according to them. They said, Station only recently advised of this transaction, not items not of agency origin. So basically what they said is they denied that the weapons came from them, but they said they did know that Posada was doing it eventually. Okay. Uh, they also say Posada was threatened into giving Rosenthal some pencil fuses, which is a type of fuse for explosives. Which is a weird coincidence, considering that um, Posada was trained in explosives by the American government, and then there were a string of bombings right after this. So Posada was essentially just giving this guy fuses to carry out like mafia bombings in Miami. Real insane action movie shit here. You
1: know, what makes it weirder is that this isn't, doesn't seem like to be an ideological thing or an anti-caster thing. It's just regular mob boss shit.
0: I think what it is, is that the CIA didn't fully encourage it, but they tolerated it because he was still doing what they were training him to do, which was organized trade and armed Cuban exiles.
1: Rosenthal or Kirillis?
0: Car- uh, Posada. It's, it's Spanish, so he has two last names. And if you're just saying one of them, you say the father's last name, which is Posada.
1: Mm, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I never took Spanish, so.
0: God, you don't even know Spanish naming customs. Crazy.
1: I'm going to look up Luis Posada- curry curry lace i want to see what he looked like
0: he just looked like a regular guy he, he's not that weird looking oh he was kind of handsome yeah he was a decent looking dude in his little army uniform so now we come to 1967 oh he died recently yes he did he died a few years ago he lived a long ass life too he lived to be like 90 can i can i continue yeah you can go okay now we come to 1967 this is when Posado leaves miami do you want to guess where he goes uh Mexico? South. Guatemala? South. Colombia? Re- general region. Venezuela? Yes! He goes to Venezuela. Uh, because Cuba had recently done a little bay of pigs of their own. You know, a little revenge. The Machu... Uh, how do you pronounce that? Machuacuto? Raid? I think, and it consisted of 12 trained Cuban guerrillas who landed in Venezuela and planned to recruit and train fighters from a base in the Andes Mountains to fight an insurgency against President Raul Leone, or Leone. Uh, Leone was not a huge fan of this, so they brought in Posada to be the operations chief for the Venezuelan intelligence service, uh, mostly to fight these guerrillas and their recruits. Posada says of his time in Venezuela, quote, "I persecuted them very, very hard. Many, many people got killed." <laughs> oh So uh, yeah, that's that's not a great thing to say about your time in, count, in the counterinsurgency movement, but it is accurate. Uh, he He put down that rebellion, that's which is what he was trained to do. Uh, one thing kind of funny is that he just took some random CIA gear when he left for Venezuela. According to the CIA, he stole, quote, three or four smoke grenades, booby traps, delay fuse, primer cord, M2, MK2 grenades, ten pencils, metascopes, etc. I'm assuming the pencils are pencil fuses, which we mentioned earlier. They're a type of fuse for explosives. They hmm. look like a pen. They're very they're sort of thin and long, which is why they lo- and they lo- which is why they're called pencil fuses. And a metascope is a telescope that lets you see infrared light. So That's he was taking like cool. So he was taking like high grade military gear here.
1: That sounds pretty fucking cool, I'm not going to lie.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, don't worry, though, because Posada hadn't totally abandoned American interests. Okay, He was still dedicated to attacking Cuba. In 1968, he actually had another plan to arm some Cuban exiles, but it fell through because the Venezuelan Interior Ministry discovered that the Venezuelan Defense Ministry was involved, and the Defense Ministry had to shut it down to save face. Once again, our man has been foiled by random bureaucracy. Very relatable of him. (laughs) Posada also allegedly dabbles in some arms trafficking, just for funsies. The CIA suspected he was involved in a $300,000 arms deal involving Venezuela selling arms to, quote, American rightists. No names were given, and I could not find a single one. Which, listener, I fucking looked. I need you to know that, listener. I really wanted to know what American right-wingers were buying guns from Venezuela. But I could not figure it out. What happens next? Uh, well, he Posada didn't come alone. He brought his good friend and fellow anti-Castro militant, Orlando Bosch. Uh, Orlando Bosch was similar to Posada in that he dedicated his life to fighting the Castro regime in Cuba... Uh, but they cut him loose when he got a little too crazy. Was
1: it one incident or was it just kind of a culmination of things where they sort of decided, okay, this guy's
0: um, needs to He go used a-, a homemade rocket launcher to attempt to down a Polish freight ship headed to Cuba.
1: Wait, a freight ship? Oh, for a yes. second I, I said train and I was very confused. I was like, wait, no. I don't think there's, I was going to say, were the water tracks?
0: <laughs> no, we will come back to Orlando Bosch in a little bit. Uh, but I need to get through a little bit more before we can get to him.
1: But he used a homemade rocket launcher?
0: Yes. To I'm kind sh- of attach imagine... to sh- Sorry, what?
1: I'm kind of imagining the gun that was made by the guy who shot Shinzo Abe.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what it was from reading about it.
1: And that just has like eight barrels for some reason?
0: Yeah. So Posada and Bosch stay in Venezuela... Uh, Until the new president, Carlos Andres Perez, uh, is much less hawkish on Cuba. He reestablishes bilateral diplomatic relations between Venezuela and Cuba, and he submits a formal request to the Organization of American States to lift sanctions. So you know what Posada does?
1: Tries to overthrow him?
0: Sort of. He founds his own private intelligence agency in Caracas, but suddenly he's out of money. So you know what he does? You want know what he does to raise money? Now, No government is paying him.
1: Hits up the CIA.
0: No, uh, he gets into cocaine smuggling.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say he robs banks.
0: No, that would be funny. But no, he gets into cocaine smuggling. Uh, the Americans eventually find out about this and are not thrilled, uh, especially because it's now 1975 and the church committee is in full swing. Uh, and the church committee, for those who don't know, was investigating CIA shenanigans, both abroad and at home. And uh, therefore, they're forced to prematurely formally terminate his involvement with the agency in June of 1974. This is when the CIA claims that they went no contact with Posada for a while. Because they found out he was involved in cocaine trafficking.
1: And they didn't want to have to deal with it? (laughs) No. Which, I mean, makes sense.
0: Yeah. Posada was devastated at this. He really liked America, and like genuinely, and he missed having their sponsorship. Uh, In a quest to get visas for himself and his old contacts, he starts trying to feed information back to his old CIA contacts to get visas for himself and his family. He tells them that his buddy Orlando Bosch is going to kill a family member of Salvador Allende, the former president of Chile. Uh, He tells them that Bosch is going to kill Henry Kissinger in Costa Rica. Uh, Luis Posada loves snitching. He never met a man he wasn't willing to stab in the back, which I guess makes sense if you're a longtime intelligence operative from multiple different I was, governments.
1: I was also going to assume that none of these th- plots were actually real.
0: Well, let's back up for a second and talk about Orlando Bosch, all right? Okay. Uh, he's another important player in this story. He has a pretty similar story to Posada. He was in Cuba during the revolution, became a dissident a year later despite participating in the revolution, then fled. He comes to the U.S. quickly, gets involved with the Cuban exile movement. He starts off sort of comically bad at it. 1964, he gets stopped by police because you know what he's doing. He's towing a jury-rigged torpedo behind his car, middle of Miami during rush hour.
1: I was going to say, he's just got a a fucking torpedo
0: in the back of his car.
1: Oh, for a second, I thought you were talking about him in Havana before you said Miami.
0: No, this was in Miami. Oh.
1: Did he, like, go to jail, or were they just, like, did they just confiscate it, or what?
0: I'm not even done listing his crimes yet. Don't worry, we're going to get to what his jail time. Uh, in 1965, he gets charged with smuggling bombs out of the U.S., presumably to do terrorism against Cuba. In 1966, the police find 600 pounds of explosives in his Cadillac, which was also a convertible. In case you didn't already hate this guy, he drove a Cadillac convertible.
1: Wait, why why was he keeping explosives in his car? That seems like a pretty easy place to find it.
0: Uh, Because he was, well, the police asked him. They were like, what the fuck? And he said he was going to load them onto a boat and attack Castro with it.
1: Was just kind of hoping that they would uh, support him?
0: Yeah, and that kind of worked. Uh, later in 1966, he's caught attempting to shake down another Cuban exile for $21,000 that he can use to do more anti-Castro terrorism. Um, listener, somehow he beats all of these cases. All of them. All the ones I just listed. He got caught for all of them and never really served, had much consequence for them. Uh, I have a couple guesses. I think it's possible he had a bunch of sympathetic juries uh, just from the local Miami area. I think it's possible the police messed up somehow uh, or that he was being covered for because the government was sympathetic to him Uh, because these cases were a mix of federal and state criminal charges. So it can't just be that one cover person was covering for him. It would have had to be a couple different people. But I think that's what was happening. I think people were just like, yeah, he's trying to fight Castro. Let him go.
1: Especially if it was in Miami with a large Cuban exile community.
0: Yeah, like, I think, you know, juries, prosecutors, local cops, probably willing to go easy on him. Yeah. But eventually, his luck runs out. In 1968, he went to a bridge overlooking the Biscayne Bay and shot at a Polish freight ship with a, quote, homemade bazooka. He did actually hit the ship, but luckily it didn't do any damage. So, not on- so he's not the best terrorist. I did just describe a bunch of failed attempts. Uh, however, he gets 10 years in jail, but gets released on parole in four. However, while he's in jail, his wife leaves him uh, because he's so dedicated to the anti-communist cause that he never spends any time with his family.
1: Oh, that's kind of sad.
0: Uh, he gets paroled in December of 1972. Don't worry, you're not going to feel bad for him for long. Oh, okay. Uh, it's unclear what exactly he did in 1973. But in 1974, he's allegedly involved in the murder of Jose de la Toriente, another Cuban exile. So on April 12th, 1974, before the feds can grab him, Bosch heads to Venezuela at the invite of his friend Luis Posada Carriles. Uh, however, he doesn't last long because he's not there invited by the government to serve in the government. He's just there to keep doing anti-Castro terrorism. Uh, at this point, Cuba and Venezuela have resumed bilateral relations. So, you all know what he does to a meeting of Cuban and Venezuelan diplomats. Bombs them. Uh, yes. He goes behind. They, they were meeting. There was like a short wall behind where they were meeting, and he threw a stick of dynamite over it.
1: Did it kill people?
0: No, it didn't kill anyone. But Wait, he really? was he immediately. uh they were able to get away quickly enough. Ah, uh, okay. But, but he gets caught immediately. Okay. Venezuela says, all right, look, we don't feel like dealing with this shit. We don't want to extradite you. Just give us all your weapons. So he gives them his explosives, and they give him a fake passport and heads to Chile, which is under Pinochet now. Uh, Orlando Bosch begins what I can only describe as his Unabomber arc, using the postal system to attack the Cuban embassies in Canada, Argentina, Spain, and Peru, all from the comfort of Santiago, Chile. Uh, The Pinochet regime was pretty aware of this, and they were covering for him. They said in memos he was just an artist living a quiet life. Uh, Also on behalf of, possibly on behalf of the Pinochet regime, he attempts to kill the Cuban ambassador to Argentina in 1975, and again fails. And you just, you see this trend with both Bosch and Cariles. They just, they keep failing, and they just keep getting more chances.
1: Which I like they're like, sort
0: of terrorist fail children,
1: and it feels kind of weird because from what I can tell, a lot of uh my uh Miami uh, area Cubans don't like Castro, so I feel like it wasn't like there was a shortage of people willing to fight Cuba. You know,
0: these they were the most dedicated, but they were hardly the only ones.
1: But I feel like yeah. you could probably still find someone else to replace them, right?
0: Yeah, probably. But I don't know. No one had that drive. They had that dog in them, you know.
1: I guess, but still.
0: Then he gets arrested in Costa Rica on a fake Chilean passport, which is a different uh, fake Chilean passport than the one he got from Venezuela. Uh, the one he got into Chile with was under the name Pedro Pena. The one he got arrested in Costa Rica with was under the name Hector Avanzo. So he had at minimum two fake Chilean passports.
1: <laughs> I like how he has two. That feels like a bad idea. How? What if you confuse the names, for example, or? The well, I mean, the government knew
0: that. he was there, and they were fine with it, so they wouldn't care they could get him out of it
1: but i'm talking about like the border check guards
0: uh presumably you prepare well enough to not do that i don't know i guess but still i've never traveled under a fake passport before
1: yeah just it feels like complications that you that could be avoided you know if you only have one fake
0: passport um yeah i would think it would be smart to have one fake passport but no he had at minimum two probably more this is when back to posada uh, thinks he can get into the CIA's good graces by snitching on his friend Orlando Bosch. He says that Orlando Bosch is going to murder Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State at this point, in Costa Rica. Bosch gets picked up, and he says, no, 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 I'm here to kill Andres Pascal Allende, the nephew of Salvador Allende, the deposed Chilean president. Uh, Costa Rica uh, for the se- is now the second foreign country to have arrested Bosch and offered to return him to the United States to stand trial. Uh, the first being Venezuela. And both times, the U.S. said, nah, we'll pass. That's fine to just let this guy run wild. What could possibly go wrong?
1: It doesn't seem like a good idea.
0: In about two paragraphs, you will see that it was a very bad idea. Okay. <laughs> so now we're back. It's 1976. We've, we've caught up. It's 1976 for both of our boys. Orlando Bosch has been deported to the Dominican Republic, uh, presumably because it was the only country willing to take him, because as far as I can tell, he had never been there before. He wasn't from there, he was from Cuba He hadn't lived there for a while, he lived in America (laughs) They just sent him there With his friend Luis Posada Carriles. They start the Coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations Coru, like I mentioned earlier They meet in the Dominican Republic uh, Specifically a small town And plan a bunch of attacks They worked with the D.I.N.A. The Chilean secret police under Pinochet To kill Orlando Letelier A Chilean dissident living in Washington D.C. Uh, which means they assassinated a political refugee in the capital city of America. Uh, several people went to jail for that one because uh, they did get caught, and America was like, "All right, you can't C- calm down, guys. <laughs> Stop
1: just shooting refugees."
0: <laughs> they were like, "You can't do that in America." They're like, "If you're gonna kill Chilean dissidents, you got to do it in Latin America. You can't do that shit in D.C. Congress will get mad."
1: Yeah. Also, like, once you do it in other con- once it starts happening in other countries, I think people will start to realize, like, okay, this isn't just a robbery or whatever. This is a uh a political hit job and you don't want to draw too much attention.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Cuba connection, in case you're curious between Latelier, was that he was an associate of Beatriz Allende, daughter of Salvador Allende, who was married to a prominent Cuban intelligence agent. So that's presumably why they killed him. Because uh, he might've been feeding info to Cuba. Who knows? Although I'm unclear what info he would actually have. Uh, they bombed the Mexican embassy in Guatemala, because Mexico was too close to Cuba. Uh, then he goes back to Venezuela from the Dominican Republic, this time under what is at minimum his third fake passport. Wait,
1: Guatemala is not that, is next to Mexico though. So if Mexico's too close to Cuba, Guatemala is not going to be that much farther away.
0: No, 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 too close to Cuba, like politically, not oh, too close okay, to Cuba okay. physically. Okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Yeah. Uh, he goes back to Venezuela from the Dominican Republic under, at minimum, his third fake passport, One attending name... fundraisers held by his wealthy anti-communist benefactors in Caracas.
1: Was this guy ever friends with BB Raposo? Who? Uh, a Cuban guy, friend, close friend of Richard Nixon.
0: Oh, I don't know. That name didn't come up in my research, but maybe. Hmm. Interesting. Was he prominent in the Cuban exile movement?
1: Maybe. I don't know.
0: Yeah. If he was, then they probably met once or twice. Or at least, you know, exchanged money somehow. Uh, I was really curious who those wealthy anti-communist benefactors were, but I couldn't find it. A lot of this episode is shrouded in mystery, uh, as tends to happen when you talk about, uh, you know, CIA agents. Now, there's one major attack by the KORU I haven't mentioned yet. Remember when I said... Uh, oh, the, the American government's attitude to both Bosch and Posada was, yeah, just kind of let them run wild. They're mostly attacking Cuban-aligned stuff. It's, you know, we don't love it, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, that kind of blew up in their faces on October 6th, 1976, when thirty-seven, pe- when, uh, sorry, 73 people who were boarded Cubana Air Flight 455, departing from Barbados. While the plane was in the air, a bomb went off and killed everyone on board.
1: So I assume America was mad.
0: This was a huge international incident, especially because some of those who died were literally teenagers. They were young athletes who were part of the national fencing team of Cuba. Yeah, Uh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, this was a real oh shit moment for both the CIA and Venezuelan intelligence, as they were pretty sure Posada did it. So they looked into it. And Venezuelan intelligence figured out that the bomb was in some luggage dropped off by two Venezuelan nationals who checked their bags, got off the plane at Barbados, and left their luggage on the plane, presumably where the bomb was. And both men were known associates of Luis Posada. So they arrest him, as well as Orlando Bosch, his close friend.
1: And just to be clear, uh, everyone on the plane died?
0: Yes, all 73 people.
1: Only 73 people on the plane? Yeah. I guess planes were smaller back then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Posada took several different tacts when asked about the bombing sometimes he said it wasn't him that it was done by a Cuban double agent to make him look bad and sometimes he said it was quote a legitimate act of war that quote was in a public interview and that's as close to an admission of guilt as you'll ever get out of a lifelong intelligence operative like like uh, Luis Posada especially this guy yeah that's what I said like this guy oh, okay Yeah. One last bit about Orlando Bosch before we go back to Posada again. Uh, His trial drags on until 1980 when he's acquitted because most of the evidence against him is from outside Venezuela and therefore not admissible in Venezuelan court. He doesn't get out of jail for a while because there was an appeal. So in 1983, he starts a 53-day hunger strike. And honestly, I have to give respect where it's due. 53-day hunger strike is pretty fucking hardcore.
1: And he survived? He did. Wait, 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 okay.
0: And he eventually wins. He gets his appeal and goes back to Miami in 1988, uh, where he's immediately arrested for violating parole from the Bazooka case. Oh. Uh, eventually, though, the George H.W. Bush administration orders him released under supervision, and that's it. He gets away with it.
1: <laughs> wait, so was Bosch or uh, or Posada the one who... What was I going to say? Um, which one was the guy who had blown up the plane and then basically said it might've been him, but like, didn't really admit it fully. Okay. Okay. This is another issue I have with him. This guy is a lifelong operative who's just going around doing all this shit. And he doesn't know one of the basic rules, which is stick to your story. Uh, yes. The fact that this guy had a career as long as he did is kind of impressive considering he doesn't even know the basic rules of getting away with crimes.
0: Um, you'd think that. But yes, Bosch was also involved in the plane bombing, though. He was just less directly responsible than, well, arguably less directly responsible than Carilles, or Posada. But Bosch got away with it more. Uh, Posada actually does spend nine years in jail. Uh, He learns to paint. And listener, I did look up his paintings. They're not bad. Some of them show genuine skill. Uh, It's a lot of nature, a lot of powerful bearded man on horseback, that kind of thing. Are they Uh, better than Bob Ross? Yeah, probably. It's trite in subject matter, but skillful on a technical level. That would be my review of his art.
1: Better than George Bush's paintings?
0: Yeah, sort of like Hitler in that way. We're like, decently technically skillful, but very trite in terms of subject matter.
1: Yeah, people actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but people said that Hitler would have been better as an architect than a painter.
0: Yeah, probably. Because, Because, like, the paintings... That's not a thing I've ever thought about.
1: (laughs) No, but from what i heard someone say, like, I've heard that people said, like, about him that he was good at painting the uh, buildings, but he lacked imagination.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good review of his art. Anyway, do you remember when I mentioned the Cuban-American Found- National Foundation and Jorge Mas Canosa? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, they, they enter the story now. They okay. were founded in 1981 by Mas Canosa uh, on the advice of the newly, in their Reagan administration. Uh, Our favorite but Ma- president. Huh?
1: Or favorite president.
0: That's right. The favorite president of this podcast. Okay, uh, so- but Mas Canosa, even though he'd gone legit, he didn't forget his day ones. He wasn't going to abandon his boy Posada forever. So he gets his brother Ricardo to go to Panama and pull $50,000 in unmarked bills from the company's accounts in Panama, and then has them, and then has him organize using that $50,000 to smoothly get Posada out. Posada claims that the money came from selling his house in Venezuela, but uh, I think it's pretty clear that you can't trust a whole lot of what he says. <laughs>
1: Yeah, considering he has changing stories as to whether he blew up a plane or not, I'm going to assume that this guy was lying.
0: He definitely did blow up the plane. I just want to clarify that But in, the fact in that case that wasn't ha- clear.
1: Having <laughs> he absolutely about... killed
0: those 73 people.
1: No, he did, but the fact that he keeps having different stories about it, my point is he doesn't seem like he's trustworthy.
0: Oh, no, not at all. Uh, on August 18th, 1985, he grabs a Bible, puts on a priest's jacket and collar, and walks out of the prison. He claims a farmer approached him and asked him to pray for his sick son. So he walked out of prison. Just like that. He lies low in Caracas for a few weeks. Then he goes to Aruba, then Costa Rica, then El Salvador. And finally, in El Salvador, he gets to connect with, with his Elliot American buddies. Huh? With Elliot Abrams? Sort of. Oh. Yeah, actually, you know what? He meets Felix Rodriguez, another Cuban-American exile and former-slash-current-CIA employee, who says, uh, Hey, do you want to help me and Oliver North supply a little group called the Contras? And I think that's a good place to end.
1: Okay. Fun fact, actually, um, uh, Felix Rodriguez would actually is actually the playable the primary playable character in a little game called Call of Duty Cold War.
0: Is he fucking really? No. Oh God, I you you could have told me it was, and I would have believed no, you. But I how fucking mean, insane those Oliver North
1: is in that game. I'm pretty sure
0: Oliver North is in that game, and he voiced himself.
1: And he's in Black Ops too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Black Ops 2 is also the one where you meet Jonas Savimbi.
0: Yeah. Do you ever meet Castro or like any Cuban Exiles
1: in uh, the game? In, Bla- in the first Black Ops, which is the one that I played all the way through, I never got Black Ops 2, so I'd only played at like friends' houses and stuff. Yeah. But in the first but the first Black Ops game, which I played all the way through on my uh, laptop, that is the one... There's actually... The first mission is the Bay of Pigs mission, where no, it you end up shooting Castro only to find out it's a body double.
0: Are you fucking serious? And then you meet the
1: real Castro.
0: You're kidding me. This isn't real. No,
1: and then you get sent to a gulag in Russia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that's so good.
1: Where the guy you end up becoming best friends with ends up being a a violent psychopath who dies in the breakout, but then you hallucinate is with you uh, in Vietnam five years later. And you see him do a bunch of horrible messed up shit only to realize that it's you who did it all. And this game is fucked up. There's also a mission in Kowloon City, which is actually really fun.
0: I thought this game was just like generic, like boomer shooter, U.S. military. Good. This it is just like, dark. <laughs> this is some dark shit.
1: No, some of the missions are actually really good, though. Like, there's one in Kowloon Woods in uh Kowloon City.
0: Oh, that does sound fun. Have you have you ever seen the movie Bloodsport?
1: Yeah, we I made watched you it watch together.
0: that, right? Okay, good. Yeah, it
1: was a great. We need to watch it again.
0: I, I watched that movie. I for a while, I watched it every year on my birthday. Really. For like a good three or four years. Yeah. I don't know why. It was just, it was just very comforting to me.
1: It's a good movie.
0: <laughs> it's so good.
1: All right. This is where we're ending it? Yeah, I guess so. All right. Next week for part two. I'm next Gabe. Next for
0: part two when I have to finish the research. So yep. I'm going to go get on that. I'm Gabe. I'm Rose. Our email is running on a postpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is courtesy of soundcloud.com slash oxblood oxblood. And our Twitter is at a post pod for however long Twitter continues to last.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: All right. Signing off. Stay woke listeners. Bye. Bye.